0: Welcome to La Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background and challenges. The sport industry moves fast and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to Le Corner.
1: Welcome to the 25th episode of The Corner. Once again, we had the opportunity to discuss with a high-profile expert from the industry as we welcome one of the leading voices in international tennis in the field of sports science and coaching, Masha Reed. Masha has a PhD in biomechanics and has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and books. But as any athlete, Masha cannot cope with status quo and needs to progress all the time. And this is where comes innovation, as he is currently the head of innovation at Tennis Australia, but also general partner at at Wildcard Venture. During this episode, we've been through his activities within both organizations to try to understand how the innovation process is handled in these two roles. We really hope you will enjoy the show and stay tuned for more insight into the sports tech industry.
0: Hi Mashar, how are you doing? Good, JB. Thanks for having me on. Um, pleasure to chat.
1: Yeah, Mashar is based down under, so you, you might hear a bit of the Aussie accent, which I love. Um, yeah. So just like I was saying, Mashar, your quick intro: you're head of innovation at Tennis Australia, but you're also general partner at World Card Ventures. That you will tell us more about. But we have the the habits when we start the podcast to to learn more about. The person the guest we have with us so could you could you be introduce yourself to our audience share a bit who you are and where you come from yeah
0: sure um so anyway i was born in europe but i've uh, adopted uh, an australian accent as as jb mentioned but uh, born in scotland um but spent my life for the most part in australia albeit there was four years there where i went back to spain to live but um in in a professional sense anyway, I've spent my career in sport, um, primarily in tennis for the last two decades in a variety of different capacities, first and foremost as a coach. So that was working with the world's best junior athletes as well as some professional players um, on the tour. So that was a great experience. The professional players were fantastic to deal with um, and so on. So I really enjoyed that. But at the same was it, time, was it,
1: were, were you a coach? Were you a coach yeah. with the players? Yeah. So Okay.
0: Yeah, I guess I was a coach and physical trainer. So I was kind of a, a jack of all trades. Um, but equally, I, I wasn't from the same playing credentials as many others. So I always mm-hmm. knew that I needed to try and have to differentiate myself. So as part of that coaching trajectory, I really wanted to specialize in technique and technology. So ended up pursuing a PhD at uh, University of Western Australia with a guy called Bruce Elliot back in the day. So he was one of the uh, more identifiable figures in um, biomechanics at the time. But technology—it was—it was the the beginnings in a sports sense of coding um, and beginning okay. to use coding languages and um, modeling uh, human performance in different ways. So it was a cool and when, time. When thing. was that? 2003 i think i started so early yeah almost 20 20 years ago now so in mocap was beginning to um, establish a real presence in the market and more and more work was done in three-dimensional spaces so it was really cool Mm -hmm. to, in in retrospect look back and go i was part of that at an opportune time so went down that route coach into scientist and then went um, and sought out a job with uh, Tennis Australia, um, having been involved with the International Tennis Federation for a bunch of time. So within Tennis Australia, I've been lucky enough to work in the high-performance worlds, in leadership roles, and then more latterly um, in the innovation space, which is wild and woolly and wonderful.
1: (laughs) Which is an amazing world. PhD, like back in the days, I guess you must have been a decent player. I guess you had like an ATP ranking or something like that. Not really. No, no, no?
0: nothing, yeah. National junior level, and that was it. It was kind of yeah. My yeah. career peaked really early, and then went down even quicker. <laughs> so again, okay. you, you must have
1: something else to be like kind of a coach or a personal physical trainer for for players in terms of like prep yeah. or mental, mental. I don't know what's it,
0: preparation? I I guess i had been a real student of the game, obviously love sport, um, love tennis in particular. And um, as you know, in most of sport really you've kind of transitioned out of this world of it being an art form um, in terms of its instruction into becoming progressively more scientific. So maybe I was at the beginning of that journey. Um, I didn't hang around for a great deal of time, but... Uh, the time that I was involved in the professional context I really enjoyed and likewise with the ITF in the mm. um, junior space. It was it was fantastic.
1: And, and while you were like a PhD, like with all the biomechanics and all the high-performance study you were doing, also you were saying modeling 3D or kind of the start of coding and sports performance with, I guess, even data and all the new data that we started to collect back in the days. Um Were you as well on the tour? I mean, were you as well helping? Were you at Tennis Australia already at the time to help on the high performance or were you still traveling around and helping different players at the same time or were you very much focused on the PhD only?
0: No, look, in the early 2000s, I was combining. I was based out of Spain, um, working with the International Tennis Federation, a guy called Miguel Crespo, um, broadly in the world of yeah, mm-hmm. coach education, performance. So I was lucky enough for the ITF to allow me to do that work, which involved travelling with um, junior teams. Um, there's a bunch of names there that um, people would be familiar with that went through that kind of funding pathway with the ITF, as well as working on the tour with, um, you know, professional players at the time. And then mm-hmm. when that kind of came to its natural end, when I wanted to spend more time studying and so forth, I was able to consult, continue to consult to different groups around the world um, with federations and and players in mind. So it was great. It's,
1: It's an amazing position. I mean, I've rarely heard about PhD or people on the scientific or research side being that much on the, I would say, practice or kind of on the field and having directly access to, gold mine data or gold mine information that you can collect for the research that you were pursuing and stuff that's that's a unique position actually i
0: I guess i always came from the practical side to the scientific Mm -hmm. i didn't go the other way which um maybe the more typical or trodden path start in science and try and make your way across i was kind of always practical first and then the science can kind of follow noting that oftentimes the science lags practice anyway right but i just had an (laughs) inquiring mind wanted to know more um wanted to kind of challenge the status quo or push some boundaries so and that funnily enough that's kind of um the trajectory i've been on even in the innovation space
1: yeah clearly it's an entrepreneur mindset that you have and actually i wanted to I see it like telling your a bit of your resume or your life to the audience. It's a bit now. You're also mentor at TechStars, and when I see it, is like that might be the next step that you've done. I mean, I wanted to ask you like what what you've learned or what are the key takeaways for you to actually help different startups at, at your own personal level. But I guess it's a bit related to the entrepreneur mindset that you were referring to, like pushing the boundaries. Not being necessarily happy with the status quo and all of that.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's a kind of um, personally or selfishly kind of a match made in heaven in in some respects. If I'm not able to work with the world's best athletes or coaches, or or not doing that Mm. anymore, if I can work with the the world's best founders or aspiring to be that, you know, couldn't wish for any more. So I've kind of I love tech. I love the idea, the idea or the spirit around. Trying to pursue something new and better. And then mm. I love working with people. And generally, founding teams or startups are just that. They're a combination of some really brilliant minds trying to come together with a sole focus of um, making what they do really special.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And especially in the early stage, I mean, it's very much about, it's not even necessarily a product, but it becomes a product or service quite quickly. But clearly it's, it's a team and it's a, it's a journey with brightest mind trying to solve one pain point. So clearly understood. Uh, you've mentioned like today after many years at Tennis Australia, you're now in charge of innovation. Can you, can you tell us what it means exactly? I mean, Innovation is, is. I mean, yeah, yeah. We, we know that innovation can have like many definitions and is perceived very differently from maybe one organisation to another, and even to one individual to another. But what, what are the missions, the responsibilities, and and what it is for Tennis Australia?
0: Yeah, well, I think you're right. Like we we probably had those those types of conversations mm-hmm. back in your time yeah. with um, UEFA and and what you were doing there. So. It means different things to different people, um, different things to different organisations. So with our DNA, so that's the the, the tennis and event DNA in mind, um, just because some, one person has that in their title, take me out of the equation, could be anyone, um, doesn't mean they're the custodian of all things innovative within the business. So day to day, everyone within our business is charged with the uh, Opportunity and/or responsibility to innovate a process, innovate an experience—you name it. Mm-hmm. So elicit a change that adds real value. Um, otherwise, it could be intangible or tangible. Ideally, tangible um, to just that to to what they're doing in their functional roles day to day. And then there's another part which. In the world of horizon kind of and thinking, if you like, that's kind of a more medium term where you're planning with perhaps the next um, business cycle and or financial year in mind, where you're trying to go about again innovating a process, experience, you name mm. it, and then ultimately or lastly, there's something that's more into the distance, which might be higher risk and more uncertain. And I guess my team's fortunate enough to be in a position whereby we're able to make um, some of those bets and or opportunities come to life where it's like, okay, we're seeing this trend emerge in the market. We think this will be an opportunity into the future. How do we position the business in a way whereby it can benefit from it and those that participate in our business, be it the fans at home, fans that come to our events or the players themselves, <coughs> it can make some value.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have both the kind of horizon five to ten years in terms of future trends, understanding or anticipating the future, and having the opportunity to bet on some of these trends to make to leverage those. And you have the kind of short term, like how do you how do we improve processes or what, whatever we are delivering
0: on a daily basis. Uh, and yes, is that you and your team? Okay, sometimes they're not mutually exclusive. Um, yeah. So they they can go hand in hand and clearly they've got a relationship with one another um but in answer to your question my team's more focused into the future it's got more of a futures focus okay. notwithstanding that when you look okay. ahead some of that can carry over into the day to day and likewise do you, in the do, you, do you have an example
1: on that would you of, have like some kind of a use case like a, potentially something your team have like highlighted I, I don't need for necessarily something confidential, but something that you were like, okay, that's something more for twenty twenty five or the AO in twenty thirty. And actually the team on the ground came or with the ops or whomever that was within the department came to you and said, Oh, but that's of interest. Can we can we try to plug that in or can we try to do what you're looking for?
0: Yeah, I think there there's countless. Um so one that immediately springs to mind is our most recent investment through uh, Wildcard Ventures, if you like, which was, and and this almost applies to every investment we've made through that channel, but whereby we've identified an opportunity that can become relevant today. Um, Mm. So the most recent one was in a group called Samsara that are developing an enzyme in the infinite plastic recycling space, which is all about trying to repurpose single-use plastics. So that's a real environmental Mm -hmm. challenge for us as a business. Okay, The enzyme isn't in production today, it will be in time, but the challenge exists for us now. So the business unit, the sustainability business unit that's responsible for it, they go, fantastic, let's try and partner up with these guys now with a view to building out how they can benefit us, not just you know, tomorrow because we've got an exchange of information going on and we're in a better place to make some good decisions, but next month, next year and hopefully in five years' time.
1: Mm, okay, clear. And and recently, I mean, the era was quite famous for the. Uh, I mean, in all the big buzzwords around Web three or Metaverse and NFTs oh, that everybody's looking here, about. Hey, hey? So, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering how that was. That the same trajectory? Meaning, is it something you are already looking at? Like over the past months and that's something where you said, okay, we, we have an opportunity window and the team took that or seized the opportunity in 2022 early, uh, January or was it more something where it came because it was part of the, of the business process naturally or were you involved to a certain extent or, or not really?
0: Yeah, so I think um, what we've been doing there is I think like most of the sports world, that followed the early lead of um, the NBA and uh, paying attention to what had been done there. And then that triggers a conversation internally and we had a project lead guy called Ridley Plummer who's really passionate about the space but had the advocacy and support of our CEO, our next level of management, Darren Pierce, who heads up the media Arm. So the collective comes together and goes, yeah, in spirit, and in concept, we believe we've got some assets that would really lend itself to this kind of application. So you get agreement there, and then it turns to, with the Australian Open in mind, how can we best leverage our IP or the opportunity to make something mm-hmm. really pop? And ideally, um, in that marketplace, it's going to be different and novel so that it captures the hearts and minds of um, the participants. So with that creative, kind of endeavour, it's then a matter of engaging in the conversation with the suppliers in the space. So in our sense, that was run up wild at the time. And then mm-hmm. you're, you're having this conversation around, okay, here are our potential opportunities. Um, what? How could we package that up in a way that's re- really going to land well in market? And I think you've made, that might be one
1: of the best I mean, use cases we've best. seen in sporting. One of the best. One of the best. One, yeah. one
0: of the best.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, seriously, in terms of coming with the, you know, because NFT is like, there's a gold rush with many IPs or many sports properties. Like the idea is to say like, okay, that's a cash machine and let's go there and let's release and we will sell for 100 or 150 and we'll, we'll make thousands of those and so we'll make big, big checks or whatever that is, but I think the the design and what you had behind it, and even recently with the Liverpool case with a with a cap price and everything that this is where the kind of utility and the where what you were referring to like how does it fit with the community we are trying to reach, where and I and I think for me with the AO was one of the well executed in terms of design uh, storytelling also around it like you had the the courts. Yes being like sliced into different boxes and I mean that's that that's very creative and I think that's that was a nice way of of delivering it. And one point you mentioned that I would like to hear you on it you said there was someone internally and sorry for this person, I forgot the name. Uh that Ridley. was really Yeah, Ridley. But you mentioned right after that that he had the buy-in from the top management. From the CEO. Yeah. And, and for me, that's the number one rule, I guess, or key success factors for any kind of innovation or projects To How do you feel that has evolved a bit? Maybe I don't know if it's in tennis Australia or more largely in sports or related to innovation initiatives, but the, the buying from the CEO, maybe like pre pandemic, post pandemic, how have you seen that evolving in terms of? Uh, yeah, change or understanding of it?
0: Yeah, I think, um, so there's a couple of factors at play, right? So see CEO in particular, Craig, who, Craig Tiley, um, I think DNA kind of pulses through his veins, right? So that's his kind of starting point and he, he wants to make a difference and challenge the status quo. So you've got that on the one hand and you've got um, a large number of the team that probably think in, in many respects the same way. And then you've got um, our geography or the event itself, which for the best part of a hundred years was considered the fourth Grand Slam. So you've almost got this underdog mentality where it's like, holy heck, if we're gonna be different, if we're gonna, be, if we're gonna compete, we need to do stuff differently. And we need to bring value to the table that looks a little bit different than other properties do. So you've kind of got those few, that fusion of um, perspectives which presents us with a really unique opportunity um, that allows us to have a go at the very thing that you've just described in and around the NFT project for, for this year. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I see, I see that. And,
1: and just going more broadly and maybe living, and I'm going back a bit to your early days uh, PhD in sports performance, but – if we're leaving tennis society a little bit, and um, how how do you see technology help address issues in injury prevention, but not only injury prevention? I'm thinking also like the best preparation for the athlete. <clears throat>
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. big big questions.: <laughs> Yeah, look, uh, dealing with the injury one first up, I reckon 20 years on, um, we've made some incremental progress as a sector and it's just been Mm -hmm. that it's certainly not been exponential Uh, we know a bunch more than we did back then Um, but in terms of a great handle on how all of the risk factors with injury interact to help us predict injury or forecast injury in a reliable way and therefore prevent it i reckon um, We've not made the progress there that we have in some of the other maybe verticals. So that's going to be an ongoing challenge. And across all of sport, it's so complex, right, Um, for the most part because most injuries, particularly in the sport of tennis, uh, are multifactorial in kind of nature. Um, Mm. So it's not as simple as A plus B equals C. So that's going to – and it's different across each individual. So science Mm. has made some attempts, but um, we've certainly not cracked the code there. Um, and then on the performance side, it, it, again, the, with the introduction of technology in particular, um, say even with the likes of GPS or even inertial sensors more recently, computer vision beginning to end that way as well, I think what it's allowed us to do is become um, more specific with some of our prescription uh, as we've tried to get our heads around this concept of load and how to best um, plan for, you know, peak performance, if you like. Okay. There's still so being more precise on the
1: insights you get. So being more precise to to give more uh, feedback or detailed or comprehensive information to the athletes,
0: him or her. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think we've, we've got more data points available, right? So with that, you've got more information at your fingertips to hopefully... Um, dissect it in a way whereby you're able to make Mm -hmm. some more informed decisions. I think there remains a few notable gaps. One, certainly in the sport of tennis, is on the training side. So much of the attention is applied to, you know, match day, Mm -hmm. so to speak, yet comparatively less is applied to the training setting. So getting maximum bang for your buck in and around the time that you invest on court or on pitch, I think, is a real challenge of sport. And then the second one that a little bit like the injury space is difficult to um, progress as we might like is in the whole the psychological realm. You know, we've made some inroads, but at times it feels like it's one step forward, two back in and around unpacking how we can maximize, you know, the cognitive elements of performance, if you like, Mm. or emotive elements of performance. And and from your own
1: perspective, because you've been there for more than two decades and you've been working with athletes as well, is like how the adoption – Have you seen a change as well in the adoption from the athlete standpoint, I mean, from the tennis players or from other athletes? Is it something like where the new generation is coming at you with a wearable or whatever that is, an iPhone and telling you, here are my stats. This is what I want to improve. Or is it like kind of a pushback and still a bit more defensive approach? Or have you seen a change or not necessarily?
0: I think it's better i do i don't think i'm not as defeatist as some in and around going ah it's still no different than it was 15 years ago and so i think it is better i think there's um, a more progressive approach as you know the the current or contemporary athlete is exposed to those types of technologies as they come through just in schooling and or life Um, but that said compliance can still be a real challenge unless it's Mm -hmm. driven by the athlete so i think a lot of the athlete management systems that have tried to um, embed and deliver a lot of that intelligence to sports organisations have suffered from that at times. Not the management system itself, but just the insight that practitioners are trying to extract from those systems can Mm. be by compliance on the athlete side. So, um, yeah, but I I do think we're in a much better space than we were um, even 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay. And on, on, on one of the points you've mentioned, and I think coming from, from Wi-Fi and uh, potentially a sports organizations, also making the laws of the game or putting together some rules and guidelines for, for some of the competitions. I was just thinking, like, you, you were referring to the idea of having, um, you know, the athletes being able to collect more of the data or, or being more savvy, not just on the match day, but on all the prep and all the training and all of that. If I'm thinking like, if I'm playing the devil's advocate and I'm thinking maybe the top 10 or top 20 can really afford to have technology to actually collect the data and best prep during this off competition time and all of that. Is it, in terms of equity and competitive balance and all of that, is there is there something in question for not just tennis, but at large in terms of like, would you see like a, a, a competitive advantage for, for maybe the more wealthy or for them that can understand and acquire these kind of insights from the technology and the data points, not just on match day where it can be provided to all players or to all athletes or to all teams, but also on non-match day with certain specialists or, or people around your team and staff.
0: Yeah, without speaking to tennis specifically, I think that challenge holds across all of sport and and has done over time, Mm -hmm. right, be it in relation to access to expert coaching or the best coaching historically or the best equipment. um, Those nations, teams or individuals that have had the resources to be able to tap into that historically have been at an advantage and the same would hold today in and around access to data and or extracting meaning from it. So um, I don't have the answer to that. I'm not sure there is yeah. an answer to it. Um, obviously, um, there's some sports around the world, team sports in particular, that have tried to introduce caps on spending with mm. a view to um, making the game more, uh, more comfortable or even equitable, call it what you will, and there's some individual sports that have equally tried to introduce some regulations um, to limit the advantage that can be extracted from innovation that is only possible within a few groups based on you know their financial resources that uh, they have available to them
1: I, I know it was a hard and a tough question, but I was just wondering whether you would see that gap widening. I mean my my own perspective being quite transparent here it's i feel like potentially compared to the equipment or what used to be in the past the the impact or the insights or what you can get from the technology in terms of maximizing one potential or team potential is is way bigger than what used to be in the past and so to a certain extent the risk Of seeing that gap widening between those that can afford it and those that cannot or are not investing into it is just widening. And we've seen it. I mean, maybe in the economy in terms of look at the industries or the companies that have been investing heavily in the technology driving Mm -hmm. that were key drivers for growth in the past years and for the next decades. I guess they are in a way better situation today than the others that either failed or are lagging behind today. So. And I see the same trend for sports. So that's why yeah, I, I, I was could,
0: referring to that. Yeah, no, I could. Um, I think if you hold everything else equal, so everything else mm. remains constant, and it's just leveraging data, I reckon what you're describing absolutely holds in a sports context. Um, but in an individual sport like tennis, where so much of it is. Um, played between the ears as distinct from, you know, your technical or technical or physical skill, you've Mm -hmm. got such a, you know, um, you could mount a case that Mm -hmm. you get pretty quickly to a point of diminishing returns in trying to extract meaning from data. And that's coming from a person that um, genuinely (laughs) believes in the value of data, but I don't think you can discount it um, based on, the the personal and um, mental qualities that an athlete needs to bring to the table. Clearly, it's it's just an add-on for the
1: one or two percent maximization that you're trying to to acquire. Yeah. Not all the rest, where talent is is still key. I mean, I can with all the data I can have, I, I will still be shit playing tennis. So that's <laughs> that's well, understandable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's in the eye of the beholder, but I'll take your word for it.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, before we move on to uh, wildcard ventures, because you referred to it and I really want to touch on this because I think it's quite innovative as well in the space of sport, uh, from a, from a sports organization or an IP owner. Um, I wanted to, to have a bit of your vision on what would be the, your, your, three favorite technologies, uh, for, for those that you see a great future for. You mentioned kind of your, your business is also meant to focus on what's coming next, a bit horizon mm-hmm. five, 10 years. What, what are the three favorite technologies you're looking at today where, for which you see like the biggest impact?
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Crystal ball. <laughs> well, I kind of uh, would immediately play into those that we've invested in, right? So, mm-hmm. But at the risk of it being an ad- advertisement for what Wildcard does, maybe I can... No, no, approach- it's okay. No, I was going to say I can answer it. Um, if I was to rewind the clock and look forward, or I reckon comment on some of the most um, uh, wonderful technologies that the world of sport's kind of seen over the last, call it somewhere between five and 15 years. And I was going to say... The three that really jump off the page to me uh, for different reasons, Um, one's home court, so what the guys out of the US have done in the basketball space Mm -hmm. in terms of activating, using a technology to activate um, and connect with an adolescent group and allow them to interact with technology in a way that's really engaging and has the potential to develop skill. It just I don't think it had been done at that scale before, so I love that. I loved what Catapult did, which was an Australian business, in terms of normalising the data conversation in professional sport. So I just loved it, just thought that, um, and that had been a long time in the making, but now people don't, uh, professional sports athletes, don't think twice. Um, tennis is a little bit different, but certainly the team sports, don't think <laughs> twice about sensor, right? It's just um, So they've completely changed the paradigm in, in pro sport, all led the way in doing it. And then the third one, ironically enough, is a little closer to home in in Hawkeye. And these guys both from an officiating point of view as a starting point but equally broadcast, they were real trailblazers and they've paved the way for a bunch of others to try and come into market and add additional value. So in the rear view, they're the ones that really jump off the page for me um, when I think about, you know three of my favorite yeah. kind of technologies in the world of sport and entertainment I just go wow what what those groups have done it's kind yeah. of game changing and we kind of use that term loosely but it genuinely is it's been transformative
1: okay um Okay. And then we can speak about the investment in wildcard venture because I think it's still very much relevant for the audience. And I, and I would like to, to discuss about that. Yep. But before we jump into it, home court, I love it as well. I mean, I'm not Calibre or Kai. We know, we know them well as well. And I, and I, and yep. I also agree with what you just, you just said, but home court to a certain extent. And now their moves from purely the sports performance or the elite pathway with younger generations or with the academy side of things to now a bit more of the grassroots and let's say the vast majority of citizens that want to play sports and trying to have this kind of digital or kind of like pushing kids or anybody to to play the sports a bit more. Is it something that you're looking at uh, from a from, from your perspective within the AO or are you trying to work with the ITF on that in terms of like pushing the boundaries for having more and more tennis players at amateur grassroots level
0: everywhere in the world and especially in Australia? Yeah, so it's, it's a great segue into I guess the first investment <laughs> we made um, with Wildcard Ventures was in a group called um, Swing Vision, which was out of um, – the Silicon Valley in the States, um, a, a, a group of computer scientists um, coming together with a view to almost um, pulling together two of those favourite technologies that I just mentioned, almost the, um, the use case of Hawkeye and the use case of Home Court coming together in a way that would allow recreational tennis players or kids around the world to use technology, engage with it, and make the playing experience pop in a way that our sport hasn't previously. So, um, mm-hmm. in answer to your question, yeah, we're we're continuing to collaborate with that group because one, we're invested in it, and we want to see them do really well, but we genuinely believe on are the, uh, in their mission and want to be part in of their it. mission. Okay. Um.
1: So okay. So we we're
0: <laughs> I, I was not meant to, to do that
1: transition I wasn't like that perfectly, uh, but yeah, that, that's. That that's a good one actually. Uh, I should give me credit for that. For
0: future, effort, uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but maybe before, because I wanted to to see the portfolio and how do you guys invest, and so that even the startup community we we engage with usually or our audience can understand it better. But can you present briefly Wildcard Ventures? What do you do? Uh, potentially, the accelerator partnership you have with, with TechStars as well at the same times and. What's in it for the startups and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, sure. So the um, – the, at Tennis Australia, anyway, we've got three distinct parts to what we do. Um, the, the biggest part or the biggest part of our portfolio is the Australian Open and our event's footprint. So as we discussed a moment ago, Australian Open, Grand Slam, it's the biggest, um, most heavily attended annual sports event in the Southern Hemisphere. And it obviously starts, you know, it kicks off in January at the start of the year. So most of the eyes of the world are, are on us from a sporting perspective, which is fantastic. And then we're able to generate a large revenue base out of, out of that event and the accompanying events um, in the lead up to the AO, as well as, you know, the startup that we kind of launched years back, which was the Labour Cup, um, which is uh, the equivalent of Ryder Cup, but for tennis. So we've got that event footprint that creates revenue base that we're then able to reinject, reinvest in the sport, both in the performance pathway. So let's produce, you know, the next Ash Barty. And that's um, more relevant now than ever before, given Ash's decision recently. (laughs) But so next Ash Barty, the next Grand Slam champion, the next world number one. So we actively support that endeavour. And then equally we try and grow the sport of tennis throughout our communities. So we've got 3,000 clubs, just as many coaches, you know, X number, X thousand worth of courts around the country that all belong and that we try and serve as part of a um, federation. So we've kind of got those three opportunities, event, the community sport piece, and then We've got the performance angle. So with that in mind, we are genuinely pursuing, like I mentioned some time ago, part of our DNA to pursue opportunities to challenge the status quo and to innovate, to adopt technology really quickly. So with that in mind, we essentially get a bunch of inbound inquiry and we're also in market actively to try and identify opportunities to disrupt as I mentioned. Okay. So as part of that, in looking at it from a client point of view, can could we adopt these technologies with a view to making experiences better now or into the future? We've also turned our attention to, well, hang on, we actually want to double down and support these founders or teams in more accelerated fashion. So let's not just be a client potentially, let's also try and invest. So, okay.
1: So it's, it's to be more of a partner. And so for for me to try to to understand it because you you mentioned you have so many inbounds, so I guess your team is doing some kind of a filtering while at the same time based on the pain points you have identified internally you are you are, you are screening the market for for new solutions to help you but yep the 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 investment I guess is not automatic there's a pre phase where potentially you are tasting or you are using the event or what you are referring to in terms of like you have a a specific phase, or is there something? Is there some kind of a formal process you have, or is it more on a case-by-case case basis,
0: depending on the product and the service you are looking for? Yeah, sure. So the um, so I guess, and I should clarify, it's not we're not operating as a corporate VC. Um, that's very clear to us. Um, we're not investing off the you know directly off the balance sheet, or anything like that. This is us trying to invest with a view to delivering financial return. Mm-hmm. But in delivering the financial return to ourselves and the LPs, the best way for us to help ensure that is to springboard the technology through the assets that we kind of have. So they almost go hand in hand. Our best way of offering up value to the startup is to ensure that we can inject them into um, our ecosystems or opportunities, and in turn, we'd hope that that would grow value in the business and equally grow value for our partners in the fund. So, but in answer to your question, in terms of the due diligence process, if you like, yep. There's a screening process that myself and Todd Deacon, the other GP in, in Wildcard is involved in. Um, so that's obviously extensive to pass through that first gate. And then it's a matter of taking that to our venture advisory group they become a bit of a sounding board for us, given their expertise and experience in the field, and then ultimately to the investment committee.
1: Mm, okay, and and once they have passed these gates, it's like you 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 provide them with some kind of a I guess both uh, technical or expertise from your own staff, like depending on the business units involved internally, but also some kind of a test case. Uh, I mean I don't know if you're if you're running also other events, maybe less i would say risky than the AO in terms of trying something out directly,
0: but how how does that work? <laughs> it depends on the business a little bit, so yeah okay. um, some of the digital technologies can kind of plug into some of our assets online you know relatively smoothly and and directly uh the likes of Swing Vision that I mentioned a moment ago. That doesn't necessarily need the springboard of AO. It's got a different market or audience in mind, so it, it that conversation becomes very you know case by case. Um, hmm. Yeah, there's not okay. a one size fits all approach there.
1: Yeah, okay. And is there like in terms of investment? I guess that's the same process. Is, is do you have like some kind of a thesis or do you have like a minimum or maximum investments or do, do you have specific
0: conditions or, or not necessarily? Yeah, so I think initially um, when we launched, we, we were kind of positioned in a way where it was we were thinking about check sizes classically in your C to Series A kind mm-hmm. of stage. Um, but increasingly we've probably accepted that as opportunities come, especially those inbound, We've got the flex to be a bit more agnostic for stage. So then the check size just needs to scale up accordingly. So right. you mentioned a moment um, early on, mate, that in terms of deal flow, one of our most active um, and opportune ways of accessing deal flow is through our accelerator with Techstars. So for those that aren't familiar, Techstars is obviously one of the world's biggest corporate accelerator groups. We partner mm-hmm. with them a couple of years ago with alongside the Victorian government and Victoria University. And that program literally, this, our second program, our second accelerator, kicked off just last week. So we've got 10, in a more traditional sense, probably seed stage, seed stage businesses that are participating in that accelerator. Um, we interact with them in d- different ways, both as mentors but equally with the potential to run proof of concepts mm-hmm. or pilots that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. so And then ultimately, because we've got 12 to 13 weeks to, in essence, um, get a sense for what makes them tick and what opportunity lies ahead, it's a great way of making decisions for wildcard also.
1: Yeah, it's a bit kind of a testing playground for you and see if there is a market fit or if there is something and then potentially at the end of this kind of a, 12, 13 weeks program, you can see whether that is smart to make an investment.
0: Yeah, and Techstars was our first active move into the venture space. That was our first deliberate step, which is like, okay, Mm. let's connect with a really reputable group internationally and let's get involved in in the market. Let's get involved in the um, ecosystem and begin to grow our own networks our own collaborations Uh, heck that might have even been where you and i connected um through that kind of broader network so that's been really valuable in in growing deal flow more broadly
1: and and a quick one on that is like you're based in australia how do you perceive maybe the difference or the similarity between the the sports tech
0: down under compared to europe
1: or even north america
0: I reckon any data points tell us the same thing, right, which is there, the industry in Australia is smaller than both of those markets, which is where our fund needs to be um, international in focus. So it's not like other groups that have got a real domestic or Australian-New Zealand lens. We're looking for opportunities that come to us internationally where um, we can make uh, their t- technology run um, more quickly globally but equally Um, within our borders or within the region
1: Mm. and maybe one of the last questions i have and it's like i'm seeing this trend i mean we've been seeing it for for quite some times now but players athletes are becoming more and more important they are becoming more and more savvy as well in terms of investment Uh, they are becoming their own brands not just on social and everything but Maybe the NBA players have been leading the way, that's for sure, and they paved the way and we've seen it now in, in football and many other sports. Is how do you see that for tennis? Is it something where well we've seen Roger obviously investing and in a few other ones as well flipping up with different startups?
0: Serena's got her own fund. Andy Murray's pretty active in the space. So Yeah. Yeah. Is a there a
1: strategy the th- for you to be closer to the professional tennis player maybe in Australia as well, or is it not necessarily something you're thinking of? Or?
0: So no, the fund is um, open um, because it's a syndicate model whereby we identify these opportunities and then present them to our syndicate, and it's it's a confidential syndicate. They can opt into deals on a deal-by-deal basis as they might, might like. So the professional playing cohort is absolutely welcome to join the syndicate, and, and some have, um, which is great. So, um, and it's up to them. It's on them as to whether they want to use their IP and/or brand to springboard mm. um, the startup to higher heights. We won't be doing that. That's that. That's for. That's a decision that the individual athlete needs to make.
1: Yeah, that's their own decision and own case. But they could yep. be part of it, and they could be leveraging it, which would be good as well for, for Wildcard Ventures and, and the the AO, I guess. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that's got to be a decision that um, the individual's comfortable with.
1: Mm. Okay. Um, last questions, maybe as well. Maybe crystal ball, quite a, a difficult one. But I, I wanted to ask it from from your wild card venture perspective: is where where do you see, to a certain extent, I don't know if it's the sector or a specific vertical is where you've seen the most innovative or the high potential solutions to to engage with uh is there a specific vertical or or specific space or some ideas or, or or some even tech or product you've seen recently that you
0: were like okay that that's something to be looking at i think you know the whole meta um so the metaverse mm-hmm. web 3.0 nfts is going to be one that we have to watch and we're all part of that trajectory over the next kind of decade um so that's not going away at all um in mm-hmm. different forms, continue to present as an opportunity um, more broadly in the media and kind of broadcast space. That's a tricky market to enter, but really lucrative if you can. So, in a way, it's ripe for innovation, but the barriers for entry uh, are quite high. high. Mm-hmm. And then, thirdly, in the world of betting and integrity, there's with a window of three to five years in mind. I reckon there's a real opportunity there for some, for some clever groups approaching different problems in unique ways to maximize and leverage their IP. So that's, that's a thematic that we're following closely.
1: Okay. clear. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, maybe a last question for, for audience or anything we'd like to, to finish and to wrap up if you have any recommendation, I don't know, a book, a series or something you've been watching when you were a kid or recently or whatever that is, any kind
0: of, or even a podcast or whatever that can yeah, be. Yeah, you know but what, there's a, there's a podcast. Um, and for those that are interested in innovation and kind of um, David David and Goliath battles, I, I love what um, Business Wars have done. And that's not mm-hmm. a new, I've been going for three years, but um, it's a great listen. The way that it's presented by the narrator, I really enjoy. Um, It's informative but not heavy at the same time, and it's a fascinating um, insight into the way that an industry can be disrupted. So, anyone that hasn't tuned in, I recommend that for sure.
1: Okay, cool, Mashar. Thank you, thank you for uh, for the time. Thank you for the insights and for sharing the the BAO and the wildcard venture perspective. That was That was really cool. And, uh, yeah, talk to you soon and we'll be in touch.
0: Thanks, man. Cheers.
1: Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles, and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le corner.